And thank you all for singing and worshiping with us this morning. If you got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 6 once again today. Matthew 6, we began there last week. We'll continue and uh, going to camp out in this scripture for the next week or so. Uh, so I hope that you'll, uh, hope you've been looking at the scripture if you were with us last week. Looking forward to uh, continuing to study what Jesus has to teach us about prayer. And if you weren't with us last week, don't worry, we'll catch you up. And I think everybody will uh, be on the same page when we get into our conversation for today. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to ask you a question. I think we all can relate to this. Do you remember learning to swim? Uh, growing up in my day meant, uh, my day, like I'm you know, like looking way back. Growing up in today's world um, meant you pretty much learned to swim in a pool. Um, I think we all have a pretty similar story, at least as far as our initial immersion into the pool went. Um, I, I grew up next to my grandmother's um, place and she had a pool and it was important that we learn to swim to be safe around the pool. Um, so I was a little less than enthused though about um, going to swimming lessons when I was five years old. Uh, but mom, bribed me with a Game Boy, um, brand new Game Boy Pocket at the time, so top of technology. Um, I was very excited about that. So uh, of course, funny enough, I went to the swimming lessons, I got the Game Boy, and I spent more time sitting on the side of the pool playing that than I did swimming. Um, so it worked out. At least I knew how to swim in case I fell in, but uh, made sure to not get that near any water. Um, but uh, perhaps you were born for the water. Maybe you, you, know, you, you didn't really learn, you just learned how to swim because you just jumped in and figured it out, uh, whether you went through training or not, or lessons or not. But maybe you were born for the water. Water, maybe you drove right in, but more than likely, um, it, all, of our, all of our stories include some little resistance there in the early days of swimming. Maybe something happened, you dove into the deep and you were having a good time. Maybe you had an early scare uh, and uh, maybe your boldness was dampened a little um, and uh, maybe your excitement was watered down uh, just a little and uh, you began, became a little bit afraid. Um, I think it's true that a lot of our early memories of swimming, um, maybe your current memories of swimming, I don't know, but I think a lot of our earliest memories of swimming um, involved a lot of holding on to the ledge. Uh, I can even, you know, that, that texture on the ledge of the pool has a very distinct feeling, right? You can feel that chalky uh, th substance in your hands just thinking about it. Um, uh, but I remember being at swimming lessons at Mr. Rose's just down the road from here. Uh, and his pool, very nice, had a, those built-in steps that kind of went into the shallow end. And I remember all of us four or five-year-olds, it was just pulling teeth to get us away from the steps, to get us away from the ledge. Um, and uh, maybe when you first stepped into the ocean, there's a similar experience that we have, um, that as you went into the ocean, you could still stand and there was an instinct to keep it that way. As in you wanted to make sure that you could still stand and you didn't want to go too deep where you would lose your, your grounding. So maybe you're one of those people that you, you never get more than knee deep in the ocean. I'm, I'm one of those. Uh, for years, I, I, I lingered in the shallow end of the pool. For years, I held on to the ledge of the pool where I could still stand on the bank there near the wall. Um, and it's for this reason uh, that I have never been and probably never will go into lake water because you can't see a ledge. There isn't a ledge. It's just ground, right? And you can't see a visible sandbar, even if there might be one. I just don't want to go into the lake because I don't know where I can stand and I don't know where I can hold on to. So I'll just stay on the dry ground. Um, I don't think I'm alone on that one. I just don't trust the water. I just don't trust my body to float in the water, even though the science says that our lungs are filled with air in a way that we have buoyancy in the water. That uh, humans have this strange, unique thing about us that when we get in the water, um, we are less dense, we lay less than the water, so we float under normal water conditions. And if we just surrender to that reality, we'll float. If we fight it less and just kind of go with it, 
we actually end up being pretty okay. But even with all of that, even though the science says that and, and everything suggests that I should be comfortable, I just don't trust the water. I just can't surrender to it. And I bet somebody might be there with me today when it comes to swimming. There's no good reasons why I shouldn't trust it and that I shouldn't surrender to it. Even if I'm capable of it, even if our bodies miraculously can float, I just don't really want to trust that. I just can't surrender to it. You see, while I was learning to swim, and even though I can swim, without surrendering, without trusting, without cooperating, me plus water is just not a good combination. Now, it's not that I'm scared. It's more that I just don't really care about being in there, but I'm just not comfortable surrendering to something that has a mind and a nature that's far more potent than my own. It's almost as if we're not even talking about swimming anymore. <laughs> we're not even talking about water anymore. It turns out learning to pray is a lot like learning to swim. If we never surrender, are we really swimming? No. Are we really praying? Are we really just holding on to the ledge? Are we just living in the shallow end? Prayer, more than anything, is an act of surrender. As we've learned and as it's been said by many, as the Bible firmly teaches, prayer isn't about imposing our will on God. It isn't about convincing God of our will. It's not about seeking or asking God to do what we have asked him to do, but rather prayer is about seeking God's will. Prayer is about being convinced of and by God's will. Prayer is surrendering to God's will. And it's true that prayer that is not an act of surrender becomes an act of resistance, maybe even an act of rebellion. Now, that might seem a little extreme, and it might be a little bit of an extreme level of contrast, but if there's one thing that Jesus revealed to his generation, it's that his testimony continues to reveal to us is that when it came to walking with God, when it came to walking and talking to God, Jesus has the market cornered on it. He convinced everyone that he had a connection to God that had never been seen before, truly authentic, truly effective in more ways than people had ever imagined you could actually know God, and it genuinely surprised people. For generations, people had been praying through formalities and rituals with incantations and ceremony to no avail. Religion had taught them to come before God with their merit and their righteous records, hoping they would impress God, hoping they would bend his will towards their own. They would bring their list, they would bring God their list of wishes coupled with their works, wondering if and when their will might become his will. That was religion in his day, it's still religion in our day. People observed Jesus praying and it dawned on them that Jesus prayed nothing like the average person. So they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. We as a church are collectively asking the Lord that very question. We are begging, we are praying, Lord, teach us how to talk to God like you clearly know how and talked to him. Because if we're being honest, when we observe his prayers and walk with God, we may call ourselves Christians, but we don't necessarily take a lot of inspiration from our Christ when it comes to how we pray, even though he taught us very clearly how we should do it. Now, I got to ask you, why is that? It's almost like when we were saved or when we became Christians, we ignore the cornerstone of our fellowship with God, how we should pray. And we're still praying as if we don't have that relationship. We began our conversation about prayer last week, coming to the conclusion that so many of us, and it's our nature, so it's not our fault, it's just how we were made, how we were born actually. Um, we don't know how to pray like Jesus prayed and taught us. And even if we've heard it 
to hear our prayers, it seems like we have not adopted his template. We looked at the story in the Old Testament about King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat, kings of Judah and Israel that teamed up to fight a common enemy. Ahab was completely consumed and controlled by the world. He did not listen to God, didn't seek God. And Jehoshaphat got around him and realized, wow, I need to learn how to pray. I need to seek the Lord. So he fasted from the world and tuned himself into God. Jehoshaphat realized that he had to unplug from this world and totally surrender himself over to God. Ahab was the end product of what Jehoshaphat knew he would become if he did not do this. So from that scripture we looked at last week, if you read the story continually, Jehoshaphat goes to the Lord in prayer and he says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He was given God total surrender. God, you know what to do. You know what we should do. And we're looking at you until we know what we must do. Now, of course, on this side of the New Testament, we don't have to pray with that in that vague sense because Jesus taught us very specifically how we should pray. In Matthew 6, which is the text regarding prayer, Jesus' disciples hadn't been following him but a few months, and the one thing they asked him about was prayer. He first deconstructed what they knew about prayer, and he makes a point to teach us that the heart of prayer is about how we pray. It's not about what we pray for as much as it is how we pray and to whom we pray. So he made it very clear that we must disconnect from this world and set our hearts and minds on God who cannot be found or felt in this world. In his template, he teaches us to begin our prayers, not with a petition, but with praise, not with suggestions, but with concentration. He teaches us to pray like this, our father who is in heaven. Now, their implications of this is so big. There's two things here that we learned and that we need to make sure we know very well. That our Father, our God in heaven, he is infinite, but he's also intimate. We can talk to the God of the universe as our heavenly Father. God is your Father. He knows what you need before you ever ask. That's the idea of what it means to know God as Father. He knows what you need. Before you ever pray or come to Him, He already knows what you need. And in verse 8 of Matthew 6, He says, I'm already going to give you what you need. Don't worry about that. But He's also the Lord of all creation. He is in heaven, as in he clearly has plans and purposes that are beyond what our little minds can imagine or even desire. It's hard to internalize this, which is exactly why Jesus instructs us to begin our prayers and concentrate on this reality, our Father who is in heaven. You know what happens when we pray like that? It frees you from being uh, from the impossible task of trying to please him because your father loves you because you're his child. You don't have to earn that status. He gives you that status. You don't have to try to do something to impress him. He's your dad. He's always going to love you no matter what. So you don't have to come to him as if he needs to be impressed or has to accept you on the basis of some merit or some work. He's already provided you salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what our Father means. But it also frees you from anxiety that says, if I don't get what I want, then if I don't get my way, then I'll never be happy. Because you can trust the God of heaven who invites you to call him Father. You can trust him that his will is better than yours. Now that may sound easier than it actually is applying it. So going off what Jesus taught us, we pray like this. Your will, not my will. 
Your kingdom come, my kingdom fall, as in I'm bowing before you. And what happens when one kingdom encounters another kingdom? Y'all have watched enough movies, read enough books. You know how this works. When one kingdom gets to the gate of another kingdom, it's either surrender or something worse. Now, our Father in heaven is not to invade or conquer. He's here to assume and collect and make us a part of his. But his kingdom is greater than ours. And when his kingdom comes, our kingdom has to go, lest we get in the way, lest we miss out on what he has in store for us. So how's that been going? If you were here with us last week, how has it been going praying like this? Your will be done, not mine. Your kingdom come, not mine. If this is new information for you, how how does the proposition of adopting this model sound to you? Even though it may sound ideal, it's it's not that easy to realize. It's hard to unplug And that's why we cling to the ledge, isn't it? Because we don't really know what it's like out there in the water. Can we really trust it? Can we really trust him? Praying those words, when we say them and mean them, when it registers with us, it kind of makes us retreat to the shallow end, doesn't it? It it makes us want to get back to the sandbar. It makes us want to grab onto the ledge. There is in all of us a semblance of resistance because we worry and we wonder, what about what I want? I mean, I'm all right praying your will be done, your kingdom come, but God, I don't know. I've got some things I want that I don't see your Bible addressing. I don't see that your, your, your plan for me doesn't seem like it's going to line up with my plans. And God, it's not that I'm just wanting rebellious, sinful things. I've just got some things that I want, and I'm really wondering, does this mean you don't want to even hear what I want? Does this mean I don't even get a chance to get what I want? Your will, your kingdom, and I hear it, I hear you, yeah, it's your will is best, and you know best, and you love me, but you know, God, I still got some things that I would like to ask you for. Does this mean we can't even do that? Is it wrong to ask God for something that we want? Is it bad of us to want something or ask something from God? Spoiler alert, no, it's not. It's actually encouraged, but I can see how these two pillars might conflict with each other, and I'm sure you can too. Between surrendering to and requesting for, which should we do? What is God's will, that we surrender to him completely, not even ask anything. So as if the tension isn't already there, I want to confirm that asking and petitioning before God is a biblical concept. In the next part of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is going to teach us what we should ask for. But I want to make it very clear that there's other scriptures that we all know, we all quoted, we've heard preached that make us think, well, you know, of course God says, ask and it shall be given. We've read these parables before. Jesus taught on this in Luke chapter 11. He says, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. But Jesus, as I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his, of his impudence or his audacity, his persistence, Jesus said, because even if it's inconvenient and kind of, weak, kind of you, know, you know, trespassing all that, because he was persistent, he will rise up and he will give him whatever he needs. Now make sure you see the needs part. And I tell you, Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks will find. The one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Who would do that? If then you who are evil, now that's Jesus' words, not mine. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father 
What did, what did it say? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So all of a sudden it goes from being a material thing to a spiritual thing. Jesus said, yes, your, your father wants to hear you ask, but also know that your father sometimes gives you things differently than what you ask for. But by seeking him and looking to him and knocking on his door, you will get what he has in store for you. The, the big idea of that passage is right in line with what we've learned. If we trust God with childlike dependence, we will never be disappointed. So we should seek and ask and knock for what he has in store. In the parable, the child asked for bread and for fish, things that they needed, things that were not readily available or they didn't have access to, much less abundance of. There's another parable that Jesus told about an unjust judge. And there was a widow who had lost out on something that she needed. Her estate had been taken from her. And the widow goes before this unjust judge and he, she just continues to nag and nag and nag. And the judge says, I don't have time for that. I don't really, I'm not really you know, obligated to deal with you because you're not really, um, you know, I don't gain anything by giving you what you need. But the story goes that she continues to seek the Lord again and again and again, or seek the judge. And the judge says this, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I love Jesus that he told this parable. Because the widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. See, here we have someone seeking justice in their local judge rather than taking it into their own hands. This would, not have, this would have required not only incredible faith, but also resolve on her part, choosing to not seek revenge. Keep that in mind. So what we've talked about doesn't contradict the idea that we can ask and should and, and seek and knock for things for God, but it guides us in what we should be asking for. Listen closely. The idea of surrender isn't a shedding of what we want. It's a transformation of what we want. It's fitting the desires of our heart through the desires of God's heart, obtaining a heart with God's spirit that wants what he wants. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires. He will put new desires in your heart. He will purify what you think you want and show you what you need. Now, often in life, we feel as if we have everything figured out and we say, if only life would cooperate with me. But our God in heaven is saying, if only you would surrender to me. Life may never cooperate or function as you intend it. It can actually be better than we could ever imagine if only we would set our hearts on the Lord. Ask and seek and knock for what he desires and what we truly, and what we will truly find peace and hope in. So yes, it's okay, it's good to ask things from God. Jesus knew this would be a point of tension, which is why he prefaced this whole parable with that reminder, God knows what you need and God will provide what you need. But his prayer template by no means leaves out what most of us have on our minds when it comes to prayer. From, a, from the youngest age, we are told that prayer means to ask something from God. And we, we've covered that, that. Of course, Jesus said, hey, there's some things you need to get to first. But all of us have a question. When can we ask God for something? Jesus tells us what we should ask for and how much to ask for. Now, we, the what is interesting, but the how much part might be even more interesting. So he tells us two things that we should ask for. Two things. One thing he wants us to ask for limited quality, quantities of. Man, that's no fun. He wants you to pray for limited quantities of one thing and then unlimited quantities of another thing. Now, spoiler alert, 
they're the opposite of what our nature would think they would be, but we should expect that by now. We've acknowledged that God, we acknowledge what God wants, but now Jesus tells us what we should want and what we should ask for. So he's going to tell us to pray for two things, provisions and pardons, provisions and pardons. He's going to tell us to pray, give us and forgive us, give us and forgive us. The idea of giving something, getting something where God is in both of those, give us and forgive us. Now, which of these do you think God expects us to ask for limited quantities of? I mean, why can't they both be unlimited? I'm sure that's somebody's question. There's a good reason why they can't both be unlimited. Look at verse number six, verse number 11. Jesus says, pray this, give us this day our daily bread. So we hear twice in that request, give us this day as in, hey, this is, I'm just praying about today. How hard is that? I mean, we got a whole life in front of us that we're worried about. Give us today our daily bread. So, you know, I would like if, you know, if God just wants me to pray for this day, then that's fine. But hey, God, give me today enough that would take care of me for my whole life. Because, hey, that would be fun to have right now and then save some for tomorrow. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, he's teaching us a model for how we should begin every day, a way of tuning ourselves into God before we are distracted or preoccupied by anything else. But in doing so each day, he instructs to only ask for God to give us what we need for that day as opposed for what we might need every other day. You know, there's something that in us that always wants more, isn't there? You ask somebody how much is enough and they'll tell you a little bit more than I have, right? The phrase daily bread is a callback to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Remember when they would wake up every morning, they would find daily bread in the campground, the manna from heaven. It was bread that God sent from heaven. On Fridays, they had a double portion to carry them through the Sabbath. This was God wiring and conditioning them that God can be trusted and he provides your needs. He knows, he cares, and he can be trusted. And this was to prepare them for more than anything, their days in the promised land, when they would be tempted to forget that it was God who provided for them. So Jesus instructs us to pray in this same way. Give us today. I mean, he's almost saying, I want you to say, God, I don't want anything besides what I need for this day. I mean, why would you be, why, why is Jesus trying to box us in? Why is he trying to, to limit us with what we ask God? He reminds us that we are the children sitting in the lap of our heavenly father. And he promises, I will provide you what you need, but let's not move past the moment. You see, we have it so good, church. We have pantries full, we have fridges and freezers full, grocery stores just a mile away with everything we could ever need for today, tomorrow, and next month. It's lost on us where we have just enough for this day. We don't live in a world where we only have enough for today, right? We live in a world where we have enough for today, tomorrow, and next week. We don't live, I'm not saying you don't, but as a society, we don't live as if in order to survive, God must provide because we've got enough provisions in the tank to last us a little while. The truth is we absolutely do live in this reality. We just don't pay attention to it anymore. We are a culture of excess. We've ascended and evolved as a people beyond the point of dependence. We are independent. We're self-reliant and we're proud of it. 
Our country throws away more food than some countries ever have in their hands. Our country is the only society that quits using products that still function. We have thousands of dollars worth of stuff in our drawers and in our attics that's worthless to us, but is valuable to somebody. We don't worry over what we will wear or what we will eat one day. We worry over 401ks, don't we? We don't worry like they worried about what they will put on and what they will eat the next day. We worry about getting a longer vacation. We worry about our safety, even though we're locked in fenced homes, right? So they worried about things that we have never even imagined worrying about, but we still worry, don't we? And I'm being facetious, but it's necessary to remind ourselves that we don't live minute to minute, day to day, like they did, like some countries still do. It's important to put into context our current place in the world, in time and space, so that we think that in a certain way, as Jesus asks us to pray, we think, he's out of touch with me. I can't just pray for what I need today. I need to know what tomorrow's going to give me, and I need to know that I'm going to have what I need next year and next month and maybe even a decade from now. But maybe we're the ones out of touch with God, not the other way around. In the margins of your Bibles, there's a reference to a proverb that is related specifically to the language that Jesus uses in this verse. Our learning to rely on and depend on and be content with God's daily provisions for us. More than that, this is about our learning to desire only what God desires to give us. Give us our portion for this day and this day only. But I must warn you, this may not fly with some of the prosperity-minded circles, but, if you, but it will free us from the rat race of this world's empty offerings that we often get caught up in. The proverb that this verse is connected to is Proverbs verse 30, Proverbs 30 verse eight. This is Solomon, the richest man to ever live. Okay, this isn't some person that's mad at the rich and wanting to tear it all down. This is the richest man that ever lived, that had more stuff than we'll ever even think about having. This was his prayer at the end of his life. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty. Well, I don't want that. Nor riches. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's not in the Bible, is it? You can check, fact check me if you want to, but it is. Solomon, feed me with the food that is needful for me. This is a man that never wanted a day in his life. And he says, you know what? I wish I would have prayed all my life. Feed me with the food that I only need right now. You know what this is meant to do? Pry your fingers off the ledge. Lord, don't give me more than you know I can handle. Solomon gives his reasoning for us in verse nine. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Guess what? He got full and he denied and he did say, who is the Lord? which is why you should trust him because he's been there, done that, wore the t-shirt, wrote the verse. Or, 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 and he gives credence to the other side, or if I become poor, now he's confessing, if I get my back against the wall, I don't trust myself. I will blaspheme God in a minute. Herein he confesses the pride and dishonest nature within him that he is not above abandoning or dishonoring God. Solomon considers his propensity to turn away from faith. In the case of prosperity, faith might not be needful anymore. In the case of poverty, faith might not seem helpful anymore. The revelation here is in his rationale, in his self-awareness of 
how likely he is to ditch his faith, whether full or empty. So he pleads for God to only give him what he needs for a daily basis because he considers that that is most conducive for his faith. So why is Solomon praying this kind of prayer? He's saying, God, I care more about my faith than I care about my flesh. I care more about my faith than I care about my wealth. Don't you see what Solomon is asking, what Jesus is telling us to ask for? Again, good thing it's the end of the hour. You might, this might be a little bit strange. Faith is strengthened and maximized from limited resources. The richest man that ever lived wrote, told, tells us this. Jesus said, I want you to pray because this is why. Faith is strengthened and maximized from limited resources. Our eyes focus on the limited, don't they? That's why I highlighted it for you. But quickly forget that resources are right there. God provides, we're just uncomfortable with the proposition that sometimes he provides just enough. See, our, our minds ask, why just? But our hearts should rejoice around enough. Because it's a reminder that God will always provide enough. Lest we become too full. Or lest we profane his name. The world has its hooks in us. We think we need more. We really just need enough. We may need to be emptied of more so that we can be filled with better. On the flip side, a heart that has surrendered continually before him, well aware of our tendency to panic and take life in our own hands. So we pray, God, keep me from giving up and help me to keep looking up. So while we're looking up, Jesus asks us to pray for God to give us something else. And while he tells us to pray for limited provisions, he tells us to pray for unlimited pardons. Forgive, forgive us our debts, it's plural, as in we've got a lot of them, but God can forgive all of them. The word forgiveness comes from a Latin word that means to pardon completely without reservation. It's the idea of giving forward or against what has or may come. It's the idea of opening the door for somebody and saying, you go ahead. I know I'm first in line. God is saying, I know I'm the chief. I'm the supreme. I'm the master. I'm the one who made you. I'm the perfect one, but I'm opening the door and I'm letting you go in first. Even though you don't deserve to go in, I'm opening the door for you because I'm forgiven what should keep you out. This is what it means to trust in God for salvation, to trust that he and only he can absolve us of sin, release us from the consequences and the power of sin. Not just the nature that calls it, but the power of guilt that enforces and enslaves us. I mean, we don't even need to spend time on this. I mean, if we've learned to pray for limited bread, we have no problem praying for unlimited atonement, do we? The Bible tells us that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's good. Psalm 86 says, God is good and ready to forgive. He is leaned towards you, ready to forgive. You know how we know that? Because our, our symbol that what defines Christianity is a Roman cross. 
Because if you ever wonder if God can or wants to forgive you, look at the cross because Jesus took your bondage and your burden and he forgave you of your sins by dying in your place. There is no question, can God forgive our sins? Yes, he already has through Jesus Christ. So we pray, Father, forgive me of my debts, knowing in confidence that God is, will, and has forgiven you of your sins. You just have to ask for it. Say, God, give me that pardon. He will give it to you. That's almost too good to be true, isn't it? But there's more to this verse, isn't there? Doesn't mean it's not that good. It just means there's something even better. Some might call this a catch, but I think it's the logical hand-in-hand next step. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. God, I'm acknowledging that you forgive me. So I'm committing to forgive others in the same way, completely, without reservation. (laughs) You know, is that really true? Did I really just say that? I said it. I don't know about you. I hope you said it. (laughs) Now this is when we start saying, where's the ledge, right? Why does Jesus do this? Because he wanted to make sure that God's forgiveness was available to us in unlimited supply, and he did. And he's wanting us to ensure that we extend that same measure of forgiveness to everybody. Jesus makes it impossible to ask God for forgiveness and withhold it from others. God is not hand sanitizer that just washes you. He is a catalyst that works through you, changes you, and changes others through you. To which we say, of course I'll cancel their debt. God canceled mine. Why wouldn't we cancel their debt? Got a lot of reasons why we won't cancel their debt, don't we? To not forgive would suggest that we have not been forgiven and that we're not following Jesus. Ephesians 4 says, be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is not a suggestion, it's a command. A lot of us hold on to the ledge here, don't we? What emotions do we harbor on these ledges? Anger, resentment, jealousy, bitterness. Apparently, this was part of the prayer that shook the people so much that after Jesus gets done teaching on prayer, they ask him some questions, and Jesus knew they were a little bit not okay with this. So then Jesus doubles down on this in verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you yours. Come again? Is Jesus threatening that God will unforgive us or rather remember our sins if we choose to not forgive somebody else? I don't think so. But what he's saying is it's antithetical to Christianity that Christians would be unforgiving. There's no way someone who expects forgiveness would not reflect it. That would make us a hypocrite. That didn't describe any of us, does it? That's why Jesus clashed with the religious leaders. Religion says, I'm good with God, so I have an excuse to be at odds with others. Christianity says, because I'm good with God, I will be good with others. Jesus pegged them without truly being good with God. He said, you can't see, you're not pure. Our hearts are not pure if we're not forgiven. There's a direct correlation between our forgiveness and extending it. Religion makes excuses, but not Christianity. Our indignation is an insult to Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. 
our refusing to forgive is an insult to Jesus' provision of forgiveness. Whew. I could have made this a whole sermon, but I decided not to. So who do you need to forgive? I know you got a story. You got a story about why you can't forgive them and you don't, they don't deserve you for, to forgive them. I, I understand. But listen closely. Jesus loves you and he hears your story and he hurts with you, but he will never excuse your unforgiveness. He will never do it. No matter how good the reason is. You know why? Because there was a lot of good reasons that excused our forgiveness. Satan stood before the throne of God and said, you can never forgive them. Your law says they have completely lost it. And Jesus forgave you of every one of your sins. And if you withhold it from someone else, you know what that says about your heart? You haven't really got a hold of God's forgiveness. So why is Jesus saying he doesn't excuse it? Because he wants you to get what God wants for you. A heart that doesn't extend forgiveness is not truly benefiting from it. And I, 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 I guarantee it, you'll confess to this, won't you? A heart that's full of grudges, you're not, you're not at peace. You're not satisfied. You're not content. You aren't even at peace with God because you can't give it to somebody else. Religion has successfully separated what Jesus said is inseparable. Religion says, oh, we'll just pray about it and work on it. But Jesus says, as you pray, surrender to God for forgiveness and surrender forgiveness to your enemies. Now, why did Jesus couple these two things together? Why did he say, pray, give me and forgive me back to back? I think I know. I think God has helped us today to know why he put them back to back. You see, our nature prays for unlimited stuff, don't we? Our nature prays like we write letters to Santa Claus. Give, 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 give. And if you can't get it this Christmas, hey, I'm here next year. Our nature prays for unlimited stuff and for limited to little accountability towards others. That's what we do naturally. We pray for God to give us everything and to help us not have to give them everything, especially forgiveness. Our nature goes to God and say, God, you know, I don't like them. They don't like me and they hurt me and I don't like them. And I just don't want to have to deal with them. God, can you remove them from my life? Right? I mean, and there are people out there that will say that's God's will. We, we pray those kind of prayers, don't we? So Jesus says, hey, listen, y'all, we got to deal with this. He turns it on his head because our nature is trying to get in the way of us and the way of God. This is meant to remind us that we need just enough of this world's goods to survive, but we need all of God's goodness to thrive. See, we make it all about, I need stuff, but I don't really need them. And hey, I love them and I'll pray for them, but I'm never going to forgive them. So we draw wedges between people, but we make it all about us and stuff. And Jesus says, listen, if you want to get to God, we've got to flip that on its head. This is meant to cause us to see how God's pardon is greater than earthly provisions. Meant to make us see that this world isn't about hoarding stuff. It's about restoring souls. It's about the grace of God sharing, being shared from one undeserving soul to another. So Jesus teaches us to pray less for stuff and trust God for just enough. And may we pray more that we might treasure the greater gift 
that we might share it. Most of us spend each day trying to obtain more and we see people as obstacles. But what if it was the other way around? What if we began to see the greater work that God wants to do? And we were aware of this because we, are, we always have people to forgive, don't we? If you don't wait until the day's over, you will. Before we close, I want to lead us in a prayer asking God for these two things. Maybe both of these points have challenged you today. Maybe you're full of this world and you've grown numb to God. Maybe you're full of unforgiveness and you've become bitter before others. I hope today that you've learned that you can trust God and that you might confess that maybe we've went a little overboard on the world and maybe it's time to ask for greater things. Maybe you've realized that God's grace is the greatest gift, so great that you can't keep it to yourself. Maybe you'll confess that you've withheld it from someone and all that has done is hold you back from everyone, including God. I gotta ask you, do you want peace? Haven't you learned that more of this world does not equal peace? It just makes you more anxious. Maybe it's time to seek the Lord's good. Do you want a pure heart? Haven't you learned that a heavy, bitter soul does not do any good? In fact, it keeps you from good. So would you pray and not hold on to the ledge? God wants you to cling to him. He has greater gifts for you than this world wants you to settle for. He actually wants to deliver them through you to so many that do not know him. Would you be so bold to ask God for limited provisions so that you might have a heart of unlimited pardons that you might can share without any limit at all. It's a bold prayer, but it just might change your life. And then during our invitation, if you need to seek the Lord privately or publicly as a way of asking others to pray with you, the altar will be open. But first, I want you to listen to these prayers and consider praying them this morning. God, you are so good. Fill me with your goodness. Give me just enough of this world's good, but not too much, lest I forget that you're greater. God, you're so good, and I want more of you, not this world. Yeah, I need this world's good, but just give me enough, not too much, lest I forget. What about this one? God, make me, and I had helped me, but I thought it was too weak. Help me just says, well, I'll, I'll pray about it. But I, I want us to pray for God to make us, as in not let us, let us go to sleep tonight if we haven't done it. God, make me forgive others lest I become bitter or maybe because I already am bitter. God, make me forgive others lest I become bitter. Help me to be better so that both of us, because it's really both of us that need to get better, isn't it? Not just them. Help me to be better so that both of us might get better better i'd imagine that somebody needs to pray one of those prayers maybe both of those prayers i'd imagine that all of us need to consider what jesus says we should ask for and maybe start asking the way he taught us to would you start today let me pray for you heavenly father thank you for confronting us in a world that wants to keep us from you the world wants to weigh us down with stuff and keep us away from people. And the devil gives us plenty of things that distract us and he gives us plenty of reasons to turn away from others. But Jesus, we've heard you in this prayer this morning. You've turned that on its head. 
You've said, don't pray for unlimited stuff. Just trust that God will give you what you need. But rather, know that God has given you unlimited forgiveness and be aware that you must extend that to somebody else. God, I know somebody's heart is hurting today because they've got unforgiveness towards somebody and they know it's wrong and it's made them sick and it's made them bitter. God, would you help them to break free from that today? Somebody's heart is weighed down with anxiety today because all they worry about is more, more, more and they've never realized that they've had enough and that you give them enough. So God, would you break through this house today and break through our hearts today and remind us that you are greater and your gifts are greater and help us to treasure you and share you as we've been blessed ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.